1: just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. That's pork porkbun p o r k b u n dot com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. You'll save a dollar on your next domain.
0: We've covered a lot of failures so far this season, but sometimes product failures happen because of a reason that actually doesn't have much to do with the product itself, but something else altogether. Yeah? What's What's that? What are you referring to? Because of team
2: issues. Ah, team dynamics. Yeah. That's definitely a wild card. And yeah, there could be a
0: lot of different issues at play. For sure. So let's dig in on that one. Let's play a game if you're up for it, Michael. Let's go back and forth with various team issues until we hit a wall and can't go anymore. Ready, go. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll name a team related issue that could cause a product to fail, and then you do the same thing, and then I'll go again until we hit a wall and we can't go anymore.
2: Okay, um, let's see. So Supposed to start us off, you could have a product person that communicates only the what, but not the why to the rest of the product team. And without proper context, you know, they don't understand the problem they're trying to solve in the product and people are just doing what they're told.
0: All right. That's a good one. Um, I'll continue. You could have a product person who doesn't know how to motivate the rest of the product team, which Mm. is a big issue because it's not like they usually report to the product manager. Um, But yeah, without the ability to motivate and inspire, things might not get done at all. All right definitely counts. Okay. So you could have
2: a product person who doesn't understand the the developers, the designers on the team and if they don't speak the same
0: language. they could have communication issues. very true. okay. Um, another one could be. Um... Oh, no. Uh... <laughs> I, think,
2: I think that's it. <laughs> I think you got me. Uh, all right. New game. How about a new game? <laughs> Let's just start the show. Okay. <laughs> Today, we're going to be telling a few stories about product failure, specifically with product teams. And we're going to start with a little site called pokerspace.com.
0: All right. Fine. Roll the intro. <laughs> Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike
2: Belsito. Okay, so the first story that I wanted to tell is that of Latif Nanji's first startup. The company he
0: started right out of college. Yeah, Latif now is the CEO of Roadmunk, which is a really awesome end-to-end roadmapping tool, but before building the successful company that is Roadmunk, he first cut his teeth at pokerspace.com. So he was the chief product officer,
2: kind of also the chief financial officer.
0: Eh, you know, startups you wear a lot of hats, right? Yeah
2: they're they're all doing everything. So uh, poker space, it was what's known as a super affiliate,
0: a super affiliate.
2: Yeah, I'll let Latif explain.
3: This was a place where you could learn about poker. you could sign up for websites on poker, but you would not pay us any money. There was no transport, we we're not collecting cash. We would do we would have backend partnerships with all of the major gaming websites in the day. So poker full tilt, Ultimate Bet, Pacific Poker, Bodog they wanted our traffic because we were what's called a super affiliate but our super affiliate was masked in a social network where players could effectively you know do everything you could do on fo- uh, facebook whether it's post photos have conversations there was local groups we threw like tournament scores up and we would post winners and links and have competitions so we'd really foster a community that would then be an affiliate network for these gaming sites.
0: All right, I get it. So they get paid by various partners to drive traffic to them, basically.
2: Right, exactly. So you have a few young kids out of college, out of Waterloo, actually. Which, from what I've heard, that's sort of like the MIT of Canada? Basically, yeah. It's one of the best technical programs in Canada. So this is a bright, ambitious group that loved- Poker. Right. And they had the vision to build the social network for poker players. I feel like there's a butt coming here, though. Oh, huge. (laughs) Oh, huge. So as soon as they got together that first week, the founding team, all of a sudden they found that their focus was split.
3: We walked in the first week and we were so gung-ho on building this social network. What in reality happened for the first four months of this business is that we were investing in this property called OneDeal.ca, which was effectively an events-based community where we would go have these live tournaments, which I did propose were lucrative, but we would start actually doing all this marketing work and we would have the engineers spend time actually not building product, but building this events community. And in my head, that was ass backwards. You know, the 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 golden mission of the business was to build a community where all the poker players in the world wanted to spend time talking about poker and then build a monetary structure on top of that.
2: So they started off without focus. On one hand, they had this big vision for a social network for
0: poker players. But on the other hand, they had an easy revenue opportunity. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it didn't really sound like revenue was scaling there, or at least wouldn't be something that venture backers would be impressed with.
2: Right. So Latif, though young at the time, he tried to win this battle internally.
3: So right from the first week, I was already having a conversation against every, all the other three partners who, you know, friends are st- friends are still had, we're all still friends. Um, but it was clear that I was trying to take this from a logical, do one thing really great perspective. And I wasn't able to articulate that back then. I think, you know, when you're 21 and you're trying to find the, the communication style that resonates and motivates and inspires, um, that we may be better suited to today was just not available in my arsenal. So, Right out the gates, there was four months of arguments and conversations about where developers should be spending their time. And we actually didn't start building the community for eight months. We didn't even start the thing that was going to be the thing that propelled us to be successful for the remainder of 2008. And we only had a year to really run this thing until we downsized the entire team. So we lost 50% of the space that we really wanted to play in in the sort of two-year window that was really sensitive to the business
0: 50 percent of their time wasted because of a lack of focus i mean that's not a lesson oh but that's not
2: all right so we'll have a little bit more after a quick break so we're discussing how latif's team at poker space lost 50% of their time because of a lack of focus. In that time, they raised around 500000 which took them about a year to go through. And then they raised another 800000 from prominent investment groups in Waterloo.
0: But that $800,000, it had some strings attached.
2: That's right. The investors wanted to see particular milestones hit in order to release the capital.
0: Yeah, and this is what's known as a trunched investment. It's an investment that's split into one or more parts, and usually there are some milestones that you have to hit. Right, so tranche is the French word for slice. (sighs) Your time in Quebec is paying off. (laughs) Actually, my mother was a French teacher, but Uh... honestly, I
2: could never pick it up. (laughs) So anyway.
0: All right. Well, in order for the company to receive the latter parts of that tranched investment, um, usually you have to achieve these goals or objectives that are set as part of conditions,
3: basically, for that investment.
2: Yeah, they definitely saw something in that first year or in their diligence that you know made them a little bit uneasy.
3: We were terrible at expectation setting at a board level and at like just a one-on-one level with them. Because the way that we forecast it and a lot of startups fall into this trap, is they just build a hockey stick model and it it inspires some it sometimes it just gets the check in the door but then afterwards to level set on that my gosh we were off on all of our product estimates in terms of how long it took us to ship we had one co-op student running off in the corner building what was called a hand replayer for our sites it took over 13 months to build it when they wanted to get it done within two months. So we were off by 6X there. We were having payment non-payment issues with our partners and we didn't really explain how volatile this industry can be where your partners, unlike in other businesses, generally pay you. In our case, if they didn't like the traffic or players we were sending them, they would just withhold payment. And our investors were starting to realize that the market we were in was not very kind it was a handshake kind of business where you were not necessarily um having written contracts and you were dealing with people in what i would call the islands you know places that were you know where station capital is secured by governments and not necessarily by proper institutions so we just had this inability to communicate how difficult our business was. And then to make matters worse. And then ultimately led to our the CEO, you know, once he had taken the money, he kind of immediately was like, uh, by the way, guys, I'm not the right CEO for this company. I actually don't like the job of being CEO. I prefer just building products. So on top of all of the problems we had, we had the main founder um, not actually wanting to do this job after he had taken the capital putting everything in this very confusing state because while others were trying to step up to the plate, nobody was given the title at the time to really, you know, make the mandates and the shifts that were required for the business.
2: So a leaderless company, if that's not a team issue, then
0: I don't know what is. There's not a lot of situations I can think of than, you know, a CEO-less company, at least when it comes to team issues.
2: Yeah. I actually had a company where we had two CEOs. Um, Okay. How did that work out? Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> 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 I mean, We didn't get along, and then no one knew who was making the final decisions. I'd say one thing, he'd say another. It was a, it was a mess. Mm. So, okay, well, let's
0: let's talk about the end.
2: Yeah, so as Latif describes it, there were two phases here, right? There was the big curve down, and then there was a slow burnout.
3: I remember very much the way that my brain acted in the moment that I knew this was failed. And it was relieved. It was like, failure is not that bad. And this is awesome. Let's go do this again, bigger and better. And now granted, I was 23. I didn't have what a lot of people have today, which are families and responsibilities or a mortgage. So I was conditioned very early on at dealing with failure in a really momentous way. So what had happened was, this is 2000, summer 2008. And we're seeing the markets turn. I remember um, my poker co-founder, we'll, I'll just leave him a name, we'll call him Jack. Jack was um, had made a lot of money and he'd put a lot of money into the company, but he also was losing all the rest of his money in his private ec- or his like wealth management fund. And we could see the stock market crashing. Not only that, there was a law that was passed against gaming called the UIGEA, the Unlawful and Internet Gaming Enforcement Act. And what happened was all of the smaller poker sites effectively evaporated because they were no longer, they want, the government wanted to tax the money between the banks and the businesses that were hosting these poker websites. So what ended up happening is is that we had a lot of non-payment. We lost a lot of our players because all the bad players could no longer play in the United States. And we effectively lost like 50, 60% of our market overnight. And the 2008 turn in September of October, when it was peaking, was coming to a head when we were running out of money. So there was three versions of death appearing at our doorstep, all at the same time to a group of young entrepreneurs who frankly, really didn't have the skill sets to be running a company. So this was, there was a great sense of inevitability coming our way. And the team that was probably somewhere around 17 to 20 people um, myself and Jack had to effectively let go of the whole team. And then I obviously got the axe as well because there was there was not uh, the necessity to um, keep my sort of skill set on board, which was fine. And we had run out of money. We had investors that were, I mean, s- upset, we'll call it. And, uh, you know, there was talk of us going back to the tables to win back their money, like things that are like ridiculously hard to do. Um, and there was, and again, like I'm friends with those investors, so there was a heat of the moment kind of conversation. So when I'm saying this for the benefit of the audience of how things can look, but afterwards we all kind of laughed about it and shook hands and hugged it out. Um, but it's tough because you don't want to be losing people's money and especially investors, uh, that are in the community that you're in, you always want to try to figure out a way to make sure to get their money back. So after that, 2008 ran out of money. Now that was the first sort of death, and there was about five people left. And one of the great things, one of the great things about Canada is that you can get government-funded programs that help with some of the payment on engineers. So we managed to get about three hundred grand from the, com- for the from the government that was going to pay the remaining five people's wages. Um, and so that was kind of how they slow burned out of that. And for the next three years, the company kind of slowly burnt off. Um, a new CEO came in for a bit, didn't work out. And I think in 2010 or 11, the company folded. So
0: a fairly unceremonious ending in the end.
2: Yeah, like many startups, unfortunately, but a lot of good lessons that we can learn. I know you also did some research of your own for this episode, talking to some product heavyweights like Melissa Perry, Richard Banfield of Envision, and Shelly Perry, formerly
0: of Weight Watchers. Yeah, that's right. And we'll hear from all of them uh, right after this quick break. So, yeah, I talked to Melissa Perry recently, and she was sharing some of her own experiences working with product teams. Uh, Melissa is the founder of Products Labs and Product Institute, and she's coached dozens of product teams from startup to scale up. Um, here's Melissa's take on team dynamics and how they relate to product failures.
4: I do think that uh, team dynamics and structure of your organization play into a lot if, of products being successful or not. Um, and I've seen it in a lot of organizations where those were. The things that actually called fit cause failure. Like, right problem, right opportunity to solve it. Um, but the way that we work together as a team either led to the wrong solution, or the structure of the organization prevented the product managers from doing their job to execute on the right solution and actually find out what to what was the right thing for the customers. So, uh, for example, with team dynamics, um, one of the big ones I saw at one company is that uh, they had these designers, the UX designers, and the product managers hated each other. They were like at each other's throats. And all the product managers were like, oh, the UX designers are not good. And the UX designers were like, oh, the product managers are not good. Uh, and to be fair, like the UX designers actually had a lot more experience than most of the product managers there. They they had come from outside the organization. Um, they had been at you know, great companies before. Um, they were there because they believed in the mission of the company and the product managers were brand new product managers. Uh, and that's kind of why I was involved there. I was helping to train them, but the product managers saw themselves as like, I am the owner of strategy. None of you shall, shall pass the strategy and like be involved with it. And the UX designers were like, okay, well, if you're going to own strategy, can, can you own it well, please? <laughs> like, can, can you do your job? Um, and the product managers, to be fair, didn't really know how to do their jobs at this point, so. Uh, in one team, I remember really vividly, the, the designer and the product manager are at each other's throats. So they're both coming to me separately, like talking to me about it. And the, um, what happened was the UX designer was trying to give a uh, good direction on what the wireframe should be, like what, what the UX designer's job is, um, you know, what the path should be, how you should think about the journey, how you should think about um, the solution we were building. And the product manager didn't really want to hear it. And they, they said, no, I'm like, I own all of this. You just make it pretty. And they started sketching out these wireframes. Eventually they got released and the customers hated it. Like absolutely hated it. Uh, nobody used the product. People were calling. It was a B2B uh, company as well. So like the customers are big, big enterprises. They're calling, they're complaining. Um, they're like, you know, they just refuse to actually use it. And it's all because they really wouldn't work together. And I see that a lot. I actually got hit up recently by tons of UX designers who are asking me, like, where does product management start? And where does UX design start? Like, how how do we do it? And I've always said, like, I believe that the team, the product team really should own the strategy together. The product manager's job is to point people in the right direction of the opportunity, but it's everybody's responsibility on the team to really figure out what is the right solution to get that done. And I firmly believe that UX has a whole lot to do with product management i've seen it make or break companies a million million times um so that's a great example of where you know somebody somebody's put in charge of a product as a product manager uh doesn't know how to get along with their team and it just leads to a failure
0: can't we all just get along
2: <laughs> seriously and hey whether you're a product manager a ux professional software developer you really are on the same team. So it's in everybody's best interest just to get along as a group. Yeah, it's so true. And for those that don't get along as a group, it can definitely lead to trouble. Where else can team dynamics play a part that, you know,
0: lead to trouble? Well, Melissa did talk about structure and how structure can matter a whole lot too.
4: Structure of your product team, uh, that meaning, like, how do we place people around? products and features or opportunities and goals, there's lots of ways to structure a product organization. I wouldn't say there's one right way, but the way you determine that structure can completely make or break a product. Um, I've seen a ton of enterprise organizations break up the products into such small, minute components and put a product manager around each component and never consider the entire journey or the entire value system of that feature or set of features or product. And because of that, the strategy gets um, disparate between each of those components. So like at one organization I was in, we had a product manager um, in one of our trainings who we were talking to, who was in charge of, of the API of the login of this this company and i was like cool is it done like can people log in and she was like yeah like everybody can log in and i'm like so so what are you working on she's like i don't know i'm just enhancing it and enhancing it and enhancing it and i was i was like okay so who else do you work with in this whole what is basically an onboarding journey of getting people into the system and getting them started with their product and getting there like getting going she was like oh no i just work by myself really like uh they kick you know my my uh, this is a place using safe, which I think is very broken. Um, my product manager above me, she's a product owner, is you know going out to the users and telling me what requirements are getting passed down, and I just write user stories. Uh, and you see that a lot, like in companies, especially ones that adopt safe and adopt this structure, they separate out. product owners into small little minute components and they separate out the product managers into being customer facing and strategic and it doesn't work all the way through they don't bring the value all the way through and in this component um in this example of what i'm talking about uh they they had a huge onboarding issue like if you went up the chain which we did to the people who were actually running onboarding or looking at onboarding Uh, they were having trouble getting people started on their platform. And it's because they took every single person and put them around an individual component and they had nobody really bringing together the entire strategy on the top to look at where are we going with this? And should we be optimizing it and what are the biggest problems we can go after? So I think structure has a lot to do with um, the way teams are successful and why products fail or succeed.
2: Okay. So it's good to hear stories like this to help illustrate where we can go wrong. And you have a couple other stories related to product teams and
0: product failure, don't you? I do. Yes. So late last year, I attended the New York product conference, which is a really awesome event run by members of the New York product community, uh, including Brent Toretsky, who was a past speaker at industry and has led product at places like XO Group and Envision. And I had a chance to catch up with a few folks while I was there so they could tell me some of their stories. Very cool. And so who were some of these people that you caught up with? Well, here's Richard Banfield. So Richard is the VP of Design Transformation at Envision. And he recalled a story
5: from his past. This was back when I was running an agency, essentially a product design agency. And we were approached by a client that said, you know, our UI just isn't cracking it. Like we're just not getting the conversions we thought we'd get we got to redo this whole UI. The UX probably needs some reworking as well. But people are just confused. They're not sure exactly how to get through the product. So we took a step back and we said, okay, that's, that's interesting. Maybe that's what we have to do. But let's think about what the problem really is. And we started calling their prospects and their customers. And we said, so what do you think about the product? And they were like, it's great. We love it. We have no idea what the company does, though. So it turned out to be not a product problem, but a value proposition problem, and I think this is at the core of a lot of failures. Is the product isn't the thing that's failing, like that's like saying a child is doing some awful thing, right? Like it's the parenting, right? It's it's like you know we saw uh, the presentation earlier today. where like it's you know raising a child and raising a product. Ultimately, the responsibility is with the parent and the the creator of that product. You can't blame the product. The product's not the thing that's failing. So that was one of those things that opened my eyes to what's actually going on behind the scenes here. And that's when you realize as a product person, you're really just a therapist. (laughs) A lot of the work you're doing is trying to figure out what kind of dysfunction is going on in the company you know, those questions that you ask aren't no, so much about like, well, is this the right color? You know, is the typography right? And it's more like, why did this happen in the first place? <laughs> what kind of insanity drove this, this, this outcome?
2: A product person as a, th- Therapist.
5: Didn't we do that episode with Jerry Kalana already?
0: <laughs> yes. A little bit of a different situation, but yes. Um, anyway, and then there was Shelly Perry. So Shelly's led products in the past for groups like Weight Watchers. And when I caught up with her, she was a partner at Insight Venture Partners, advising portfolio companies with product-related matters. Here's Shelly in a situation that she got pulled into from the board of one of these portfolio companies.
6: One of our portfolio companies was in the process of building a new product. So they had an existing product, and they wanted to do something around freemium or other things, and the engineers said, we can't get to freemium from here, so we have to start a new product. We have to start from scratch because it's too hard to do. And the company was just kind of hitting their stride in terms of market fit and scaling, and they, the, the CEO who was the founder kind of was close to the product, but as they start getting bigger, the founder gets busy doing other things and the product team said the product took a life of its own and they started marketing it for about $50 a user. Their current product, which did the same thing, had an ASP of 3,500. And so there was a thought process in the textbooks around if you get people to use it, it'll continue to grow. That is true when you have a new product, but when you have an existing product in the marketplace that the the ASP is pulling $3,500 a month and you introduce a competing product for $50 a month that pulls the features that they like into it, it pulls the entire organization down. So the reality is is that the product didn't have enough features in it anyway, but what it started to do was position the whole company differently, kind of as a consumer product versus a enterprise product. And they... Um, product managers didn't even know they didn't have the experience they didn't understand that that's inherently what they were doing so their fail on the product whereas yes they needed freemium the way they solved it was we're going to start from scratch and create a product when the other one had so many features in it right that they were basically disintermediating each other so it does have an impact to the whole organization to the company but in fact it was a product failure because the the product they were trying to, to release was a freemium product that was lead-in into their enterprise product. Instead, they, it took a life of its own and they created a competing product that single-handedly pulled down the organization. The other thing that it did was it took this product that had a really good product uh, fit and was a leader in the market space And they took all of their teams and put them toward the new product, which means the product that was winning the market was atrophying because they were redirecting it and pulling it down.
0: So you had an entire product organization now being directed at a product that was actually losing the organization money. But this was really a team issue because the product team, they didn't even realize that this was a problem.
6: The team itself didn't know at all Uh because they were delivering, right? They were like, we set a roadmap, we're delivering against it, we're reading the textbooks. It says, get them on board, it's gonna continue to grow because that's what the textbooks say, right? So the team itself never realized it. It was the board, not even the CEO at the point, was a founder and really didn't have experience in kind of new products. It was the board that was saying, Sales are kind of like, there's something wrong, there's something funny. We don't know what it is. Would you please just go look at it? So it wasn't, it it really wasn't the team. And even when I started talking to the team and started kind of helping them understand, they were so angry with me. I had darts being thrown at me. (laughs) And I was walking through different ways to kind of help them understand from their perspective of, of ways to think about it. I never went in and said, I don't think this is the right direction. I said, well, how do you think that you're going to close the gap between $50 a user and 3500 How many of those do you have to sell to make up the difference, right? Do the math, right? Like So I tried to get it from every angle of, was it the, the lead technologist? Was it the product person? Was it the sales? Whatever it was, I tried to, from their perspective, kind of help them see it. But it was never the team. It was never the team and in fact the decision was made higher up only because there wasn't a, a chief product officer in at that stage which it resulted in hiring a chief product officer but there wasn't anyone in the organization that had the strategic experience to even see that the product was failing because they were actually delivering so in their mind it was successful because they set a roadmap or they set a sprint and they kept delivering what they weren't tying it to was like what was happening uh, to the other product and to the market
0: and it wasn't just shelly and richard that had stories for me there was tammy reese who works with melissa perry products labs uh, Paige costello of asana christian idioti of silicon valley product group they all had stories for me on how the product team can actually be the core cause of a product failing and I wish I had time to pack in all the stories into this episode, but sadly I don't. But they were awesome stories for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad we got to cover at least some of these. Um, and it's a good reminder that sometimes, yeah, products do fail. But it's not necessarily because of the product itself in its planning or in its
0: creation, but instead it's due to the team behind it. Very, very true. So we're actually coming up to the end of this series on product failures. We've got one more big story to share and I'm going to keep that under wraps for now, but uh, I am looking forward to that, Michael. And then that'll really do it, won't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. And then we're on to the next season, which is going to be really exciting. So after one more colossal failure, we're going to move on to some product journeys. We're going to be here, how products are created at companies like Asana, like Microsoft, and, and many more. So lots of great content to come. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com.
0: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.